Let's just pray. Lord, we come to you now and we ask that you would graciously give us insight and understanding that we would know what you're saying to us, that what you're saying would impress upon our hearts. Lord, speak that we might hear the words of Jesus, that we might hear through your word your message to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. The title this morning is Don't Give In to Worldly Power and Worship. Don't give in, don't sin, but don't fear worldly power. Don't give in to worshipping the things of the world. Revelation chapter 13 is possibly the most difficult chapter to interpret in the whole book of Revelation. That is, if you go by the variety of interpretations that there are, on this book it seems so difficult to interpret the identity of the beasts here in Revelation if you look at the number of options that people are giving however the approach that we've taken in seeing Revelation not simply as foretelling about the future but speaking about the things that, that apply across the, the New Testament era across the church age and to some extent all of human history since the fall in places if we take that approach then we, we're not simply trying to see we'll use our crystal ball and figure out what might this mean what does this mean about the future there's one thing that <clears throat> I think correct me if I'm wrong is absolutely 100% certain about when we try and predict the future, yes, we get it wrong every time. The disciples, when they were wondering, Lord, are you going to bring in the kingdom in Acts chapter 1? They were just off on the wrong footing altogether. People have predicted the, the second coming of Christ again and again and again, the end of the world. They've got it wrong each time. When we try and foretell the future, we get it wrong. So there's, there's no point in trying to do that, but also it's not the best way to, to interpret Revelation. The visions that we read in Revelation 13 might seem strange to us if we're not used to seeing how literature can be used uh, to portray events and characters symbolically. But that isn't anything that's really new. Down throughout history, people have used uh, this type of literature, often in a satirical way. George Orwell published his book Animal Farm in 1945, where he describes a farm where the animals rebelled against the, the farmer. They hoped to create a better life where each of the animals would be free and equal. But amongst the pigs who were much more powerful than the others, there arose a pig named Napoleon, who ends up getting himself into power 
And he ends up being a tyrant over all the animals, worse even than what the farmer was. George Orwell wrote this book. He described it as a satirical tale against Stalin. In Russia, uh, at the start of the 20th century, the, the communists overthrew those in power, the, the royal family. And Stalin ended up being far worse than what the royal family had been beforehand. Satire has long been, uh, had a role in the history of people giving a, a poke in the eye to those who are in power. While they weren't able to confront them directly, they were able to use satire as a way of just giving a dig to them. At the time of the Roman Empire, the the author Juvenal wrote satire, which at times was not really a veiled attack, but almost a direct attack on the cruel and volatile nature of the Roman emperor and the Roman rule. And he said that to write satire requires much courage and audacity. It's not simply writing literature, it's critiquing the whole system. He lived and wrote at the same time as the Apostle John. And while Juvenal's work was satirical, which most people would understand, John's work was written to the church, which not everybody would understand. You needed to know your Old Testament to be able to interpret much of what John writes here in the book of Revelation. And yet, chapter 13, you don't really need to know too much about the Old Testament, although it helps in order to understand what is being said here. There are two beasts to dis- to being described. The dragon has allowed two beasts to rise up, his henchmen, in a sense. One described in Revelation 13, verses 1 to 10, and the second beast described in the rest of the chapter. Before we look at them in more detail, let's just have a quick overview. Let's just give a spoiler as to who they are. The first beast has power, a throne and authority, and it represents political power on earth. It represents those who have military might in a worldly sense. The second beast is more religious. It's not... It doesn't directly have worldly power, though. It is granted some power from the first beast. It exercises all the authority of the first beast, as we read in verse 12. But its role, as we read in that same verse, is to get people to worship the first beast. The first beast has power, political ruler, uh, a military power. The second beast is a worship leader for the first beast. Meanwhile, the dragon, the devil, he's behind both beasts, making war on God's people and the offspring of the woman, as we read in the last verse, or the last couple of verses of Revelation 12. And here he does so indirectly through the beasts, not just directly himself. Well, let's look at the identity of the first beast. One suggestion that was common a few decades ago that the beast is the European common market or the EU. 
well, if I remember correctly, it had 10 countries. And that was said to represent the 10 horns and the 10 crowns of the first beast here in Revelation chapter 13. But the EU started off with six countries. Then it increased to nine. And I think at one point it was 10, but then quickly it was 11 and 12. And then by 2013, another 16 had joined. So the number is not fixed. It's not static. It's not clearly representing the EU. It seems that an anti-European sentiment has really been forced on that, likely driven by anti-Catholicism in a lot of places. There's a lot of people who are still seeing that the a lot of Protestants are still seeing that the 16th century Reformation is still the only battle that's going on in their heads. And so they, they see Revelation 13 through that lens. They see Europe through that lens. And partly one reason why Britain has been, especially the south of England, amongst many evangelicals there, there's been a strain of anti-European sentiment which is driven by an approach to to Revelation 13. Um, I think to some extent Brexit is an outcome of that to a small degree. But regardless of what our situation might be now, the thing we need to remember is that this letter of Revelation wasn't written for us directly. It wasn't written about us directly or our situation. It's not directly about the end times, the final end times. It's a revelation not of prophecy, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a revelation of the devil and his activities, primarily. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's a revelation of Jesus Christ that was written to the seven churches in what is now Western Turkey, Asia Minor, as was described then. John would not have written a letter to these churches if he was talking about something that they would not have any idea about, something that would only be relevant 2,000 years later. John wrote this letter to them for them to understand what he was saying. And if we want to understand what he was saying, we need to see this letter through the eyes of the seven churches to whom it was written. Then we can immediately rule out certain speculative suggestions as to who the beast might be, which might seem relevant to us, but would be totally irrelevant to them. We need to humble ourselves and not imagine that we are the most important generation in history or the most important part of the world. We might be the most technological, but in some senses we have lost some things. We've lost a sense of the importance of art and literature. We've lost a sense of the importance of God, of religion, the previous generations had. We tend to have big heads about ourselves. C.S. Lewis wrote that when it comes to 
the end times and trying to interpret the things of Revelation. People in the 20th century, when he lived, he says they were guilty of chronological snobbery. In other words, they thought they were the most important generation that ever lived. And we, are tend, we tend to, to think that about ourselves. This must mean something about us. But no. Instead of looking down on past generations and thinking, well, that's history. They're not as important. Revelation must be talking about us. Let's humble ourselves and let's see that this letter was right was written to them about their situation primarily although it has by extension application to ours as well in arriving at the identity of the, the beast let's first look at the description of the beast this beast is similar to the four beasts described in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 like a leopard, a bear a mouth like a lion and it had ten horns The fact that it's called a beast is alerting us to the fact that the devil works in a way which is ferocious. Sometimes we can, we can not see the wood for the trees. We can focus on the beast. We can focus on what, how the, the devil and his henchmen are and how he, he works, how that is described without really seeing. The big picture is he wants to devour. He wants to he roams the earth trying to see who he can devour. He wants to kill and destroy. That's his nature. That's his work. And that's what these beasts are portraying here. That's how they are described. A leopard, a bear, a mouth like a lion. We're told in Daniel 7 that the four beasts were interpreted to represent four earthly kings... However, believers would overcome them. These four huge beasts represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. But in the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they will rule forever and ever. Believers will overcome. In Daniel, we're told that... that the holy people of the Most High, God's people, will be given the kingdom and they will rule forever. Because Revelation 13 takes us right back to Daniel 7, we can also say that the outcome of Daniel 7 applies to Revelation 13. We will overcome. We will rule forever. The beasts, the devil, they are roaming the world. They, this is their world for a short period of time. But their time is limited. Their days are numbered. Just like when a war is being fought, like say at the end of World War II, and people could see the writing on the wall, that the Allies were coming in, that the Germans were not going to succeed, and people were switching sides to the winning side. Well... We might question their loyalty, but their pragmatism was effective. When it comes to living in this world, we should see and we should encourage people to see that worldliness, the devil in his ways, 
an anti-God approach, it's on the losing side. If people want to be on the winning side, they need to place their faith in Jesus. They need to turn from their sin. They need to repent and trust in him for their own good. Whether it's fear of, of hell, whether it's a desire to glorify God, it's not the best reason just to avoid punishment as a, as a reason to turn towards God, but it's a valid enough reason Two things we see here is that firstly the beast is earthly powers with political power. We see that from Daniel 7 as well as from Revelation 13. It represents kings or prime ministers or presidents. It represents military control, military dictatorships. It represents all who are in positions of power. But secondly, we see that in the end, God's people will prevail and rule forever. The reign of these kings in Daniel 7, the reign of the beasts here in Revelation are only temporary. The Old Testament symbolism points us to see that the beast here is an earthly power, politicians and rulers, but the words described here also tell us that the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. The world was led by the beast. The whole world marvelled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. But the beast had no power in it of itself. It was basically the henchman for the dragon. The dragon gave the beast his own power and thrown in great authority. And again, it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's people, God's holy people, and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. The theme of authority that the beast had shows that this is earthly power with authority and rule. One commentator, Bale, notes that without exception, the imagery of the sea monster is used throughout the Old Testament to represent evil kingdoms which persecute God's people. This beast comes out of the sea. It represents evil kingdoms which persecute God's people. And the horns symbolize strength or power in the Bible and crowns symbolize rule and authority. There's a clear message here that this first beast is earthly power. Another commentator, Joel Beakey, summarizes, the first beast is Satan's secular friend. The first half of chapter 13 describes the power of the first beast as political. His glory lies in his military power, such that the wicked marvel, who's able to make war with him. The first beast is superpowers, or powers, big or small. In terms of exactly who the beast is, the identity of the beast, there are several suggestions by commentators. It symbolizes the Roman Empire. And that would correlate easily for, for John's readers because they lived under the Roman Empire, which was cruel, especially against Christians, um, 
with persecution at times. Christians were put to death by Roman emperors. Some say it represents the Antichrist, either as an individual in the very last days who will oppose the church, or as we read in 1 John 2 verse 8, that there are many Antichrists, or in in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, the man of lawlessness. It can be an individual or it can be anyone who is anti-Christ, of whom there are many. Some people think that it might not represent the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, but a revived Roman Empire today and the Antichrist. And there are various conspiracy theories which include the EU. Another option is that this symbolises secular power elevated to the position of a god. And you can think of North Korea. I think it was a Kim Jong-un. Terrible with names. I hope I got that right. Where he is almost worshipped. His image is up on the sides of buildings, on billboards. And he's given almost the status of being a god. Another option is it symbolises all the empires down through human history which are opposed to Christ. Well, the immediate understanding of the seven churches is the base represents the power of the Roman Empire or the emperor in particular. The emperor Nero is the most obvious candidate because although he's not the only one, John is not specific enough to be able to pinpoint any particular emperor. But it seems as though it's the empire's rule in general, but Nero was particularly evil. In fact, he was so evil that when when he died, people were almost unbelieving. They didn't believe, is that the end of him and his evil? They couldn't believe it was that easy. And so they expected him to come back to life again, which has echoes here in Revelation 13. The worldly power of Rome persecuted God's people, just like worldly authorities have been doing before then and since then. There's a sense in which, although this might directly refer to the Roman emperor, the Roman empire, persecuting the Christians in the first century, by extension it applies to all powers, as well as anyone and everyone who is against God's people right down to today. Seeing that the beast is the Roman Empire, led by the Roman Emperor, and the persecution that the church suffered then, by extension we see that any government that does similarly is in a sense the beast still working. Any government, any power, there is something of the beast in it when it is opposing God's people. In fact, from Revelation chapter 13, you could almost say that power, worldly power in itself, is incompatible 
with the church. That worldly power in itself is always flawed to some degree. There's something of the beast in every worldly power. Whether it's in the EU, in Westminster, in Stormont, in the Doyle, in the White House, in every place of power, every seat of government. Down through history. First, it's true for some more than others. The church should therefore be very wary of teaming up with the state. There should not be a church-state link where the church is side by side with the state because the church will either get corrupted or already be corrupt to some extent by even wanting such worldly power. The identity of the second beast. The first beast isn't on its own. The second beast arises as its sidekick. Well, there have been many suggestions as to who this beast, the second beast, is. One suggestion was that it was Ronald Reagan. (laughs) At the end of the chapter, we see that uh, the number of the beast is 666. Well, Ronald Wilson Reagan, there's six letters in his first name, six letters in his middle name, six letters in his surname. So there you go. Well, if you use that kind of logic, I'm sure there'll be a few thousand people in West Belfast (laughs) who would fit into that category as well. That's just so implausible, it's, it's not worth really considering. That's very, very bad, a very bad approach to understanding what the Bible is saying. To the seven churches to whom this letter was written, the identity of the uh, the man, the, the beast described here, would not be Ronald Reagan. They haven't even heard of America. 2,000 years to come, a country that hadn't even been born yet. The identity of the second beast would have been obvious to them. Although although Rome had much political power, it was each emperor in particular who people were encouraged to worship as a god. Usually it was after they had died that their image or their statue would be worshipped. But the Christians were keenly aware that they did not worship the statue of the emperor in their local town. And because they didn't do that, they were ostracized, they were discriminated against, they were not able to buy and sell. Anyone who causes people to worship the ruling power fits the description of the second beast by extension. Now it's it's not wrong to obey those who are in power. We're told in Romans 13 that we ought to respect and obey those in in positions of authority insofar as they are doing God's will and in conformity to God's moral law but what is wrong here what is criticised here in the second half of Romans or Revelation 13 is worship of the first beast the second beast is a worship leader encouraging people to worship the first beast the community the people were effectively doing the work of the second beast 
and forcing Christians to worship the Roman emperor as head of the, the Roman rule. We don't go into temples. We're not pressurized to worship the image of a, a statue of a world leader. In the ancient world, worship was done in temples in front of statues or images, as John describes them in Revelation at times, like here. But today in the Western world, we, we often worship power in different ways. And in other parts of the world, it is, is more clear as well. When those in power overstep their role from keeping law and order and allowing freedom of religion to everyone, but they start to take on a godlike sense of importance. And they start defining what morality is. And they start telling us what is acceptable to believe, such as sexual ethics or gender identity, and then enforcing conformity to that. That is overstepping their role. That is taking on the role of God. We are required to, to obey the authorities up to a point insofar as they're simply administrating, administering good law and order, but not to the point where they are defining religious belief. Anyone who follows what the government is saying is in effect involved in a kind of a worship. If the government sets it up itself up as a sort of a god, anyone who's following that is in a sense worshipping the beast. Any government that says you must worship according to the religion of its country where there's no religious freedom such as uh, an Islamic militant state such as under the Taliban or any country which says that you cannot worship any god that you have to be atheist like China or Romania was they're overstepping the mark too that's defining what religious belief ought to be Communism is particularly guilty of wanting people not to worship any gods. It wants no power higher than itself. The ruling power want only to want to be the only ones telling people what they ought to do. And so that's why they don't have any time for religion. Countries like North Korea come close to ancient Rome with the North Korean leader being effectively worshipped by his people through his images, just like the Roman emperor was. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. Around the world there are many ways in which Christians are being persecuted for not giving in for not doing what they're commanded to do. Christians in North Korea are being sent to labor camps. Some of them are being executed in the Middle East and Africa. There's some places where Christians are being 
persecuted, discriminated against in many more places. Open Doors has a world watch list where it lists the top countries where Christians are persecuted. When we find that we're marginalized or ostracized or just discriminated against in minor ways, that is part of that same worldly approach against us. But note also that it was only the inhabitants of the earth in verse 14, or as the NLT translates it, all the people who belong to this world who were deceived. Those who are Christ's are not deceived. And when someone becomes a believer, they move from being blind, led by the blind, from being deceived to being enlightened, to walking in the light instead of the darkness, to walking in the truth. They have their minds renewed. So let's come on to the the mark of the beast. What is the mark of the beast that we read of here at the end of chapter 13? Well, the number of the beast is 666. And the identity of this beast has caused so much speculation. So too has the mark of the beast. If some of you are old enough to remember, even within our lifetime, The mark of the beast was said to be computer codes, barcodes on things you buy in the shops back in the the late 80s or early 90s. Nowadays, barcodes are just a, a straight set of black and white lines. They're all the same height. But back originally, there were two longer lines at the start and at the end and in the middle. And people speculated, ah, these... Computer codes must mean 666. Apart from the fact that it seems as though they didn't represent 6, 6, and 6. Well, how could John expect his readers in these seven churches 2,000 years ago to understand, to have wisdom, to understand that the, the mark of the beast, the number of the beast would refer to computer codes, barcodes of computers weren't even around then there's conspiracy theories too which even suggest that the COVID-19 vaccine is the mark of the beast and that people are being injected with microchips when they receive the vaccine after moving over here from London I did a course telecommunications and electronics and I can tell you that the laws of physics do not allow a microchip so small to be built that will go down a needle. <laughs> and I mean, you get more chance of squeezing your car through the keyhole in your front door <laughs> than getting microchips down that tiny needle. Besides, when you look at the dogs and cats that are chipped with a a chip that that size there, a chip which is far so so much bigger than what people are saying, and yet the transmission range is like about that distance there. You have to put a sensor over the chip 
there's no way that something that small could even transmit to your from where it is to your skin, never mind to anything outside. It's just ludicrous. We don't have time to show how many other suggestions are equally ludicrous or unfounded. In fact, they tell us not so much about how Revelation 13 should be interpreted. They tell us more about the mindset of the person who is following them or believing them. Sadly, too many people are obsessed with these things. Instead, they should be obsessed with Christ. Too many people are fearful about control, those in power, when they need to realize that Christ is overcome and we need to focus on him. Yes, we should bear in mind the, the ways of governments and those in power, but we should not be obsessed by them. We should be concerned about the things that are going on in the world, but we should not be obsessed by the news. We should be focused more on Christ. What is the mark of the beast? Well, in Revelation 14, verse 1, we see, Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. The mark of the beast is really in contrast to the mark of God on believers. The mark is symbolic, a way of describing identity. It's not a physical mark. It's not a barcode or a chip. These things are physical. This mark is spiritual. This is about identifying people either as being belonging to the world or belonging to God. It refers to those who follow the ways of the world, which ultimately are one or two steps removed from following in the ways of the one who introduced sin into the world, the devil himself. In verse 18, John is more specific. Note that in the Greek it can be translated as in the note in the New Living Translation. Sometimes the language in which the Greek is translated into, such as English for us, doesn't have a direct word that is a good translation. So sometimes you have to make the best, the next best word. And here, when we're looking at verse 18, we see wisdom is needed here that the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man or the number of humanity. His number is 666. The footnote in the NLT says that it is not a specific man per se. The Greek, the word implies more that it is the number of humanity. The number is 666. Back in the days of John, calculating numbers from names was a, a thing that people did. But the problem is, as we've seen, you can almost 
you can squeeze so many different names into fit this number 666. And although people have tried to fit Nero's name in, well, it depends on whether you take in the Greek or the Latin or whatever. John doesn't tell us enough detail to allow us to, to make that conclusion. But numbers, the word number, as in the number of the beast, of the man, the word number in Revelation is always used figuratively, not literally. The point is that the number is not meant to be calculated to reveal a particular person. It's meant to be understood figuratively to refer to what is imperfect, what appears to be godly but which is not. That seems, although we cannot be certain, that seems the best understanding of 666. The number seven is a number of completeness and perfection. And the number three speaks of the, the Trinity of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 777 would symbolize completeness and perfection. And just like Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so too the number of the beast has fallen short of the glory of God. 666 has fallen short of 777. And that is likely what John's readers would have understood. Yet, John doesn't leave them to become depressed and to become obsessed, to, to focus on these things. Instead, he shows them that Christ overcomes. The parallel in this chapter is striking. Commentators have noted, various commentators have noted that there seems to be almost a parody here. An imperfect imitation of Christ is how the beast is represented. Not only is 666 falling short of 777, but as Beale describes, the key to a correct understanding of the beast's identity is the fact that there are so many parallels between the description of the beast in chapter 13 and that of Christ elsewhere in Revelation. Note the parallels between Christ and the beast, he writes. Both were slain and rise to new life. Christ in chapter 5, verse 6, and the beast here in verse 3. Both have followers with their names written on their foreheads, as we've seen in chapter 14, verse 1, as well as here in chapter 13. Both have horns, chapter 5, verse 6, and 13, verse 1. Both have authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Both receive worldwide worship, and both have a final coming or manifestation although one is to destruction and the other to eternal victory in chapter 17, verses 7 to 18. Bale concludes, The beast's career is as a kind of a parody of Christ's death and resurrection, employed to show how the evil spirit behind the beast continues to operate, though within divinely imposed limits, in this period from Christ's resurrection until his return. The parallels show us that the trans-temporal beast is set up as the supreme enemy of Christ and his people. The figure behind this is the devil himself. 
and he repeatedly works through his chosen agents throughout history. Revelation chapter 13 has many examples of how this beast falls short of the glory of God. And so the understanding of the identity of the 666 as falling short of 777 just fits so well with that approach in Romans chapter 13. We're also told, Paul tells us, that the angel appears, or the devil appears as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11.14. That is what we are being taught here in different words. The devil is appearing through worldly powers, through others who encourage people to, to be religious and to worship. But it's a corrupt worldly power. And it's, it's an ungodly form of worship. The devil, his days are numbered. He will be destroyed in the lake of fire when Christ comes again. He's on a leash. But God is in control. The suffering of God's people is only for a while. It will end. And we will be brought into eternal victory where there will be no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more sin any longer. We will reign with him instead of the devil and his beasts reigning on earth. We will reign on the new earth with Christ. The government will be upon his shoulders, Christ's shoulders, as Isaiah tells us. And so as we are encouraged here in verse 10, this means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. We can campaign. We can tweak the things of this world. We can see justice and we should campaign and we should resist evil. But ultimately we will not overcome it here and now. We should defend the, the widows and the weak and the, the orphans and those who are helpless. And we should work to help them where we can. And we should campaign and lobby governments. But we should ultimately recognise that our freedom and our peace is when Christ comes again. We ought to recognise it Enduring the difficulties of this world is a valid approach to dealing with the things of the world. We shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be fearful. We shouldn't be seeing what's in the news and focusing on all the negative things and, and letting that overcome us. Instead, we should be focusing on God's word which shows us that Yes, this is a reality, but we have victory. We must, let, we must not let these things take away our joy, take away our peace. We must focus on Christ. Conspiracy, the conspiracy theories ought not to be our focus. They make people only paranoid and fearful. They may lead us away from Christ. 
Instead, we ought to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Revelation 13 tells us that the evil we see in the world is a reality. Some religions or philosophies don't have an answer as to why there is evil in the world. And when you look at the world, the real world that we're living in, and some religious idea, the two don't connect. But the Bible tells us that the evil we see in the world is because the evil one is working through... It's not flesh and blood that we are primarily against, but evil rulers in places of power in the spiritual realms, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6. And so we must put on our spiritual armour and stand and keep standing against the attacks of the enemy, against his ways. The Bible is real. The Bible tells us what the world is like. It is true. It's the only religion, it's the only book, it's the only system that actually accurately describes the world in which we live. And it is the book that tells us how we can be saved. Our time is gone. Let's not focus on the things of this world. Let's not focus on the problems that we see. Let's not focus on the the news or the conspiracies. Let's not focus on the activities of the devil through his worldly powers and those who are encouraging us to follow the beast, the first beast and the second beast. Let's focus on the Lord. Let's resist the enemy. Let's stand. Let's put on our spiritual armour. But let's focus on the Lord. Let's look to God's word. Let's focus on Jesus. Let's focus on his victory, which is still to come. Let's not worship worldly power in even the very subtle ways that people are encouraged to do so by adopting worldly values which overstep into religious beliefs. Instead, let's worship Almighty God. Let's worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let's let's not look down at the things of this world and become fearful. Let's look up to things of God. Let's not be fearful. Christ has overcome, and we will overcome in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have overcome We thank you that you have overcome sin and death on the cross and in your resurrection. We thank you that you've overcome the enemy. And we thank you that we will experience the fullness of that freedom, the fullness of that victory when you come again. Lord, help us to persevere. Help us, Lord, not to take our eyes off of you. But Lord, we pray that we will be faithful, that we will endure as we've been commanded here in Revelation 13. Lord, that we may draw close to you, that we may know your presence and your protection. Lord, help us to look to you above all else. In Jesus' name, amen.